Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Open Source Sports Podcast. My name is Ron Yurko. And I'm Kostas Palakrinis. And we're excited to have with us today Stephanie Kovalchuk to discuss paper, A Statistical Model of Serve Return Impact Patterns in Professional Tennis, co-authored with Jim Albert. Stephanie is a staff data scientist at Zealous Analytics, where she works on advanced performance valuation for multiple professional sports. Before joining Zealous, Stephanie led data science innovation for the Game Insight Group of Tennis Australia, building first-of-a-kind metrics and real-time applications with tracking data. Stephanie is the founder of the Tennis Analytics blog, On the T, and is a great follow on Twitter at, at Stats on the T. So, Stephanie, thank you for joining us. Hi, Ron. Hi, Costas. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, so I think we'll dive right into, you know, can you talk about the background motivation of this paper uh, with Jim? Yeah, so I guess it started when um, I was, you know, looking, I try to stay up to date with what public data on tennis um, is out there. And um, I noticed um, a couple of years ago that the ATP tour, their website, they started to have a feature um, that they called a, a second screen. And it was kind of interesting because it, it was a little bit hidden. Um, you would only really see it if you went to their results page for like an individual event. And then it was just like this little button next to like the score outcome. So, um, so I was always a little bit surprised. So I, I kind of felt like, oh, maybe it's a bit like in development, but let's, let's see what's there. And, um, and um, essentially it had a number of summaries that, that were clearly from tracking data uh, that was in use at the, these events. So at the ATP tour level, Hawkeye kind of standard, it's standard nowadays for them to operate, to provide um, live officiating of, of calls. And um, as part of that, you know, they collect pretty rich um, spatial positioning data um, during all of the points that are played in matches. So, um, so this second screen feature had um, summaries of, of some of this information. And um, yeah, so it got me thinking how, well, first, how could I access it in a kind of programmatic way? And then once I figured out how to do that, then having a data set that covered um, multiple events and all of the major surfaces at the pro level um, got me to think of what would be some interesting um, analyses that, that one could do. And that was kind of what led me to think about return impact positions and, um, and then eventually looking at that data more closely and trying to see how you could model it, you know, in a way that kind of captured some of the key features um, of, of that positional data. Um, so that, that was kind of how, I guess, the story of how um, interest in that question came around. Is there, so no, that's fantastic. And I, I remember reading, you had uh, a post, um, well, an article in Harvard Data Science Review, really hitting at like a lack of publicly available tennis data, right? 
the um and so this was then this option now then you came across that really wasn't publicly visible just at the ease but um are people then able to access this like did you create like a package of some kind is there is there something out there that others can actually use now to make this readily available yeah it is it's definitely accessible um and the way to do it it's a little bit um complicated it basically requires kind of automated browsing so you can use something like like a selenium if you've ever come across that so it's it's not particularly pretty um but but it is possible to automate um now i don't think it's probably the intention of the atp for people to do this so (laughs) i think probably you know and because of this automated browsing like I feel a little bit uncomfortable without their permission to, to put out, you know, scrapers myself. There, there is, um, for the grand slams, it's, it's not the same setup, but the grand slams do, um, two of them, uh, Roland Garros and the Australian open, they have a feature that's kind of similar that it's called the court visioner. And, and basically it, it provides kind of a web applet, where you can, you know, see like points in space. And I think it's like in 3D and, and, and stuff. And it has comparable information. And there it's it's in a nicer to scrape format where it's essentially almost like, you know, pulling the underlying JSON. And then I don't feel like it's as um, disruptive of the operations there. So, um, so I do have um, a, a public repo for that called Court Vision R, Court Visioner. Um, so, th- so that's there and you can get return impact data with that in addition to some other positional data for those two grand slams, but this ATP second screen one, um, it's, yeah, it's a little bit more involved. And so I'd be happy. Yeah. If, if anyone's interested in, in the approach and maybe sharing code, but being, you know, um, conscientious about the use, um, you know, I'd be happy to do that. But, um, so yeah, it is public. It's, it's just, um, there's still a lot of limitations with it. And you can kind of see that in the paper in the sense that we focus on this. It's, it's really a kind of descriptive, um, a descriptive measure of, of position, but like, for example, it's, the ball location at the time of the serve return impact, but it's not the actual position of the player. So that's one thing that's, you know, maybe not ideal for thinking about like tactical strategy with where a player actually should position because it's this time point later that's in response to the serve. Um, But we just don't have, that's not part of the public data. Um, And, and also because of the way that that data is presented where it's largely just, part of a, you know, a graphical um, display, it's totally separated from the actual points where those um, impacts occurred. So you couldn't, there's no way to associate it, for example, with the actual outcome, which ideally, right, you'd like to say something about, well, what does this mean for performance? Um, I think there are still ways of doing that, but it's just not as direct as one would like to really answer questions around, you know, strategy and tactics. So I still think there's there's interesting descriptive value, but um, but yeah, unfortunately, because it's just not like complete 
um, tracking data. Um, it's more of this kind of, you know, second stage, <laughs> like byproduct of summaries of that data that it doesn't have everything that we would like, but at least there is, yeah, some out there. Um, and it's the first time that I'm aware where it's kind of comparable information across multiple surfaces. So that was one of the things that I thought was really intriguing about it is just um, the amount of kind of tournament coverage that there was. Yeah, so I guess, you know, going off of this, if you could just, yeah, let's describe what exactly are all of the pieces of data that you are working with here. So I, to start, when you say serve return impact, that literally means where the racket is hitting the ball, right? Yeah. So it's, so the serve return, that would be the receiver's first shot in, in a rally. So they're shot off of the serve. Um, so that's what I mean by serve return. And the serve return impact is the actual um, 2D ball location of the ball when the racket makes contact with it on that serve return. And you then also have information about who the players are. Uh, yeah, know. so we know who's serving, we know who's receiving, we know in which match, you know, which match, which round um, that it happened in. So we have some of that basic data. Um, and so we can say something about, you know, the basic conditions as far as surface, um, possible, you know, other tournament effects could be could be incorporated in, in this as well. But the major ones that we consider are um, the surface and then the direction of the serve. So yeah, uh, con uh, um, a minor question on the data. So mm -hmm. the pu publicly they, they, they are not available, but in do they also track the height of the ball and would that maybe uh, provide more information about you know, the problems that you're trying to solve um, here? There, there is also a height location that's included. Um, I think, yeah, I think that could be an extension of this work. I feel like it's something that a little bit more like quality um, mm -hmm. control might be needed. Because I remember when looking at that, that there seemed to be more... Um, more extreme values, um, you know, so things like over 1.3 meter, um, which seem, you know, a bit surprising for, for an impact position. So I think it would probably be, need a bit more, um, I guess, outlier assessment. Um, but, but yeah, that information is there. But uh, you know, for those listening, that might be a, a good uh, project to work on too. Uh, mm. Trying to um, you know improve the quality of this of the high data because I feel that might also give you some information for the, where the actual the, the player is, right? Because maybe the extreme values is because the player is not really close and you know they had to stretch or things like that, but. No, just uh, just that thought came to my mind. Yeah, there could be some interesting things if this, I think if the information that were there were paired with say a physical model, um, because tennis is quite, one of the nice things about it is that the physics are simpler than I think um, 
you know, ball motion and some other sports is. Um, and so I think like a simple physical model where from, from these public data, we would know the speed of the serve at impact. We would know where the serve landed. And so just with that information alone, um, you might be able to like reasonably infer some other things that mm -hmm. could help. Yeah. With, um, maybe better characterizing the, the nature of, of that shot and the conditions at the time of the return impact. Okay, so we have impact location information, who the players are, court side, match service, the events, also the serve number. So knowing if, okay, if it's a serve first attempt versus a second in order to avoid a double fault. And I, I think it was interesting just how pronounced that was. Uh, differences you see just even um, like figure two uh, in the mm -hmm. paper, just showing the different locations then. The, do you have information about the serve in a way like serve quality, like the speed of the serve as well? Was that available? Yeah, yeah there would be serve speed information. But again, I don't know that you would know exactly how that speed related to the points, just because it's almost like, imagine um, that the way that the, the information is packaged is kind of, you know, it's segmented into these different summaries. Like they might have a graphic that describes serve characteristics, a graphic that describes return characteristics, you know, and each one of those, it's almost like, you know, embedded within that is just an array of whatever particular stat they're showing with no connection, you know, from one set to the other. So, yeah, I think that's where the challenge is, um, unfortunately, with, with the way this, this data um, is sort of encoded in these, in these websites. So we only then also have, this is only information for when they actually made impact does that include when they like a, the the receiver returns and hits it into the net or hits it a bad shot like does what is, or is it always is it just returns that are in play or is it any type of return it's any time i think that there's there's considered to be a a contact i mean i think if something like okay. If it, you know, grazes the racket, but really doesn't move, you know, forward, I think a thing like that would probably not be included, but it's something where if it's returned, but returned into net, that should be captured. So we should have a mix of both, um, you know, return errors as well as return in plays. Okay. And so yeah, you're working with data from 2018 to 2020. And I, I was actually curious if you just talk a bit about the, the this was on page two of the paper, uh, first paragraph in section three, about talking about like the filtering criteria um, to, to focus on top players. And I guess this kind of hints at the background of just uh, working with tennis data in general, but like you describe like the justification for that. And I guess anytime I see throwing out data, my, my red flags kind of jump up in my head, but <laughs> just talk about that right. process. Well, I think, I think what the main filtering um, was 
keeping in mind that the one of the ultimate goals of the of the model was to estimate um, individual receiver and server effects. Got it. Um, and so in that sense, having including a player that only was represented in a single match um, made me concerned that it wouldn't really be representative of that of that player's skill. So even setting like sample sizes aside, which, you know, in a hierarchical framework, there's some natural shrinkage that will deal with just general lower sample size players compared to higher sample size, but there's still a kind of, I guess, representativeness mm-hmm. um, criteria that, that I wanted um, so that, you know, when I, when I'm summarizing the player effects, I'm not having to worry about applying the filter at that point. Um, and, and I know that, I have some confidence that what I'm seeing isn't just based on um, a particular player opponent matchup, that it should say something more general about that player's patterns. Um, So I think I wanted a minimum of like three, three matches or something like this. Um, And that was, that was largely, it was this kind of representativeness goal. Got it. Uh, yeah, the thing I always have to remind myself too with tennis of uh, is tournament structure. So that means the best players play more than bad players continuously, right? The, so we always have more data on the best <laughs> players in tennis. Yeah, in tennis, if you look at you know a player's season record, that loss column, each of those is a single event. So. <laughs> yeah. So um, moving a little bit uh, in the methodology uh, now, so um, you mentioned that one of the motivations for not using just, uh, you know, a multivariate normal distribution is the fact that you see some uh, clustering in the service return positions. But I I just wanted to to clarify my understanding that for a single player, you could still use a uh, a multivariate normal distribution. It's just that you cannot use a simple multivariate normal distribution to kind of find latent patterns for the players? Well, I guess, yeah, the way that this particular model that we proposed came about was when we were just, you know, exploring what the positional data looked like. One of the things that we observed, like there were some things that, that we expected where you see some players generally deeper than others, um, you see um, kind of grouping along the, you know, left to right dimension, which would reflect the different serve directions that that, that player is seeing. So, so all of that, all of that made sense and would suggest, you know, okay, there's a clear reason to have like separate means by player in this two-dimensional space. Um, we could see you know, more, more spread in some cases. But what was surprising was that there was like this clear kind of um, clustering within player and match. That was what was really surprising. And it wasn't accounted for by, you know, courtside, by first or second serve, that it almost looked like some players had different modes where they kind of go from they can go in between like an aggressive mode and a more defensive mode was one general way to kind of characterize what you could see. And there wasn't anything 
in what we could measure within that match that would explain why they were doing that. Um, and a simple normal wouldn't really capture that. So even if you, you know, condition that normal on match, on player, on serve type, it's going to still potentially miss this structure, right? Because you're only, you're limited to these nice kind of elliptical shapes. Um, and that's clearly what we weren't seeing for some of the players. And that's kind of what led us down this path to this particular latent model structure. And you can see that in figure three, page five of the paper with the 2D contour density plot. Mm -hmm. The thing that's interesting to me that I was wondering about actually was just treating add versus deuce chord separately versus as if we just like normalize so it's always just with respect to the side of the serve. Um, it was like you were actually observing different behavior depending on the even or odd point. Mm. Um, no, I think, I think it's not even that. I mean, it was interesting because I, when I first saw this, I was, I was so surprised that I went back for, um, some of the matches where you could see this and, and actually looked at individual points. Um, and, and it was surprising because I almost felt a bit embarrassed because I thought like I've watched quite a lot of tennis matches as a fan <laughs> and hadn't even really picked up on it until seeing it in the data and then going back and, and you would just see a player and it appears somewhat random like when they're doing it, it's not like it's it's not like they're always doing it on add and doing something else on deuce. It's not that it's always yeah. at a break point. It's not. I mean, and it's still a bit of a mystery. I mean, the, I think our framework is able to kind of um, handle that behavior and and pinpoint which players have more of that tendency than others, but it doesn't explain why. Um, so that's still an open question is like, maybe, maybe there is some underlying thing related to maybe the pressure of the situation or, or some particular like score variables that, that might, but, um, but yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't something very obvious. Okay. That's interesting. So I guess you know, this is a good time then to actually just let's walk through what is a, a generative model. Right, this is a data generating process for the spatial locations of serve return impacts. And this latent, latent style allocation model that you've introduced that I guess for people that might be familiar with this, the way I viewed it was when I think about LDA, uh, latent mm -hmm. Dirichlet allocation, not the LDA that no one uses linear discriminant analysis, but you know, the <laughs> LDA topic modeling and an extended version of that, but then also actually modeling now instead of just categorical data and counts, modeling, okay, the multivariate normal locations. So could you just, let's just walk through this data generating process that you have, this section 4.2, uh, mm -hmm. sort of line by line and break this down for us. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that framework, Ron, that you described um, is a really good one. Um, 
I think the topic models, you know, they do share that same goal of, of trying to get at these kind of latent categories. So, so our goal here is, yeah, a model to describe this spatial coordinate. And we want to be able to condition on both the server and receiver and the situation like we've described, um, considering the, the serve direction, serve number and court side. And so um, those are you know, some of the things that we can accommodate in the model. Um, so the, the basic idea was that um, because of this structure, um, we think that one way to capture that is that we know that individual receivers will have their own impact style. So that was kind of the first um, level of of latency in the model. There's this unknown, unobservable style, but we think that when we look over many of these return points, we can get, we, that tells us information about, about that style. Um, now the style is something that, you know, you might think is, um, that that style, you know, is specific to the player, so when we condition on that, we still want to be able to kind of accurately describe the behavior of the player. Um, but as I said, when we when we do that, we knew that there was still this kind of um, multimodality that we were sometimes seeing. And so, so that single layer of latency wouldn't really capture that um, fully. So we introduced this other latent level of a pattern so, so essentially what we think of is that um, any individual return outcome, return position is conditional on um, a specific pattern and a specific style that that receiver uses, you know, in that, in that situation. So, um, so essentially you can think of it in a more like generative way as like we first draw um, a style category for that player. Um, and that's based on um, that uh, player specific set of style probabilities across a set of style um, groups. Um, so assume we know how many impact styles are out there, then every player gets their probability weights across those styles. And so we draw from that. And then once we know that style category, that style category has a set of pattern types and weights that correspond to those pattern types are specific to that style. So that's essentially how, how the impact style is described is by um, this kind of, in the, I guess, topic model relating it back there, think of it as like a dictionary of styles. And this is like, the patterns are like the vocabulary of that of that particular dictionary. Um, so we then draw a pattern from from um, based on that style pattern distribution. And once we have those two um, pieces, we then can find the particular mean and variance covariance variance structure that describe the multivariate normal for that the impact on any given. Um, return. So that's that's sort of how the generative process 
works on like a high level. Um, and then um, there are ways of, once we have that particular mean where we can introduce um, covariates um, to account for the um, player, player to player differences. And that can both be like receiver to receiver differences and server to server differences relating to say the conditions. So how they might differ from others by surface or you know, by court side and, and so on. So all of that can be built into the individual means, but basically, you know, how we end up with um, a reasonable assumption around like, what can we actually describe by a multivariate normal structure? It's this pattern and style um, conditional distribution that that's how we do it in our, in our model setup. So in that, um, actually, that's a great uh, point to ask. Uh, one question I had, uh, Sue, you say that you're using some population effects as, um, you know, the covariates for this model. Sue, what are some examples of, you know, effects, uh, you know, variables that you're using here, talking more particularly for equation six, for example? Yeah, so there's, well, there's um, a population set of, let's say, main effects related to the conditions, which have to do with the surface, the serve direction, um, and I think court side would basically be all of the, all of the factors. Um, so there's, there are population effects, and then each server and receiver have an offset to all of those effects. So in the end, in the end, the mean is always matchup specific you know, the matchup being the particular server-receiver pair. Um, and so that could, you know, um, easily be, be extended if we had additional um, condition variables describing what's happening in that point um, that we think could influence the impact position of the receiver. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and, and kind of... Uh... A question I have uh, that I feel from reading the paper that's, that it's kind of an important part of the uh, of the framework, but honestly I, I'm, I have no idea what uh, it is. So can you explain what is a parsimonious order stick breaking process? It seemed to me that it was important for the framework, but maybe a, you know, kind of uh, high level explanation of what of what that is. Yeah. So essentially, I mentioned with with both. Um, the, the pattern and style components, um, essentially, you know, we're talking about a discrete variable, but we don't really model that directly. Instead, it's the underlying probability distribution, which is, um, which is ultimately like a discrete, um, a discrete categorical distribution. So there's a fixed number of categories and the distributions defined by the probability weights that each category receives. Um, okay, but as I mentioned, right, these things aren't actually observable. <laughs> um, those, those categories or the probabilities associated with them. And now we've introduced like two layers of this latency. Um, so there is a potential identifiability um, problem by having a number of, of parameters that um, aren't directly observable. 
Um, so essentially, you know, identifiability is, is a concern when you can imagine like um, writing out a likelihood and if you, you know, flipped a few parameters around that you still end up with like the same the same likelihood. I mean, that that calculation hasn't actually changed. That's the kind of situation. Um, it's kind of related to something like a label switching problem, although here it's not so much um, label switching exactly, but just that potentially, right, we wouldn't be able to converge to a reasonable solution without some additional constraints around those um, latent distributions. So, so one of the things that we do is to introduce this, this stick-breaking process, which is a way of describing like the, the Dirichlet prior on these um, categorical um, probability distributions. And it essentially just introduces a way of ordering um, the, the weights in the sense that um, the category labels will correspond to um, a higher or lower probability weight in the prior, and it's constrained to maintain that order. So for example, it would mean that, you know, the label one pattern um, always tends to receive, it will always receive like the highest weight for the, the population style, um, style category. Um, and then it will, it will, um, reduce from there. And so it will maintain that order. But because those labels are really meaningless until you know they're they're fit to the data. And because even within that ordering, you still are able to observe, you know, a range of, of probabilities that um, it shouldn't really prevent you from finding um, you know all of the possible all possible um, probability distributions, um, it really just impacts kind of the labeling and, and what it means, um, if that makes sense. So, so the stick-breaking procedure is really just um, a way of allocating the probability weights so that they have an ordering and that ordering will just correspond to, you know, the numeric label that those latent categories receive. Okay, yeah, that, yeah, that makes uh, much more sense uh, to me now. And uh, so just to try and give a kind of a, a analogy with some methods that I'm more familiar with, uh, just to see, just to, to see what are the parallels here. So, but you, could potentially do something like that with matrix factorization, or at least it looks to me similar to that process in the sense that you have the players that could be rows in the player, uh, rows in the matrix, and then you have, let's say, locations that can be grid if you, if that can be the columns if you, you know, mm -hmm. discretize the locations, uh, and then you know do something like a non-negative matrix factorization to try and find there you you won't have the hierarchy necessarily you will just have you know, a set of patterns that uh, you might have observed and then every player could be, you know, a linear combination of these latent patterns. But is that kind of a little bit similar, uh, but obviously to only one layer of latent patterns? Yeah, that's an interesting comparison. I mean, I'm aware of um, the use of the non-negative 
matrix factorization in um, in combination with point process models as part of a method, for example, with like MBA shot charts, mm -hmm. I think, I think, you know, they kind of started yeah. out where it was like, basically you just counting up shots made in different parts of the court. And, and then over time, it became a bit more sophisticated where um, you had this, this latent model, which the latency, I believe it's captured through the, the matrix factorization because you essentially have like a, a basis representation um, and that would allow you to, um, well, essentially the factorization, right? You can think of it as like one part is um, a basis um, describing, you know, the patterns across mm -hmm. the surface of interest, like a court. Um, and then each player has their own set of weights that determine how, you know, that basis sort of sums up to get their particular um, surface of, of intensities like, um, like shot making intensities. Um, so I think, yeah, the basic idea is similar. I think there's, there's no assumption there about, um, I guess the, there's not really a parametric assumption about the, um, about that grid beyond um, the, it's effectively, I guess, within, within each grid, it's Poisson, right? So it's mm -hmm. just, um, I guess, limited to this particular um, count. It's effectively like a count model, yeah. but extending yeah. it to have this, um, extending a count model like over a spatial, um, a spatial distribution. So I guess, I guess it would just be a matter of ex extending that to account for like ultimately what we want to model, it's not a count, it's this coordinate itself. But I, I guess if you were interested in just, the comparable one would probably be if you just looked at like how frequently a receiver made, um, made impact at a particular position in, in a grid representation of, of um, the court, then that would be within the same kind of setting where you could apply that and then um and then it might be i guess i guess you might have similar flexibility because now it's um your basis is describing sort of the distribution over this grid so i guess how how flexible it is really comes down to that grid definition mm -hmm. yeah but yeah but that could be another approach something i wanted to ask about then um in terms of the layer of we have style and then given style we have a pattern for in terms of the thing about these patterns are they are they representing just the flexibility of breaking it up further to try to capture these non-normal looking distributions of server terms for players are they really like a, because I, I, what I'm trying to think of is in the sense of uh, with mixture models, for instance, of people use Gaussian mixture models in various ways where they might choose like a high number of uh, Gaussian components in the mixture model um, where people kind of mix up, I know, like out in public of the interpretation of a component versus a cluster 
where a cluster could be made up of several Gaussian components in a nice way. Um, and maybe you might be using many uh, nice elliptical Gaussian components to maybe represent some other type of distribution, right? Something that could be skewed or shaped clearly not normally, but we're just going to approximate it with many normals. In this case, for, and so, you know, uh, other people, like, instead of just doing straight up Gaussian mixture models, looked at uh, multivariate T distributions to capture maybe a little bit more flexible shape distributions. And so in mm -hmm. this case, is, is that even an alternative to what the pattern component is? Like is the patterns really like latent patterns that have meaning or is it about flexibly modeling the return locations? And let me know if that question doesn't make any sense because this was something I was just thinking of for work I know from uh, working with mixture models while this is in more of the, mm -hmm. the mixed membership model space. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the nice thing about this model-based approach is that I, I think you can find interpretation in all of the components potentially. Um, I mean, you're right that, you know, the, the structure is, is kind of the way that we're trying to get to a reasonable description of, of the patterns on like any random point between a particular server and receiver. Um, but to get there through this definition um, or creation of a pattern and style structure, um, I think they do have um, useful interpretation in themselves. So for me, I mean, the pattern is really kind of the lowest level and the, the behavior that is best described by a multivariate normal. So I would say that it's probably, you know, the most, um, the most granular or like lowest level description of the return. So it would be something like, oh, that was an aggressive impact on a wide serve to add kind of pattern, um, okay. you know, where it's like, yes, there might be some variance about like, well, what exactly do we mean by aggressive? But we know that it probably means that they're somewhere around the baseline and it's a wide serve, so that means that, you know, they're outside of the singles line and they're not gonna really deviate much from that in that particular pattern. Whereas a style is more like, well, how often, it's telling us how often is a player of this style in that aggressive pattern on a wide serve? How often are they in a more defensive position? Do they stand, tend to stay tighter to the single sideline than, than further out wide. Um, so it would, it would be a bit more of a comprehensive summary of the tendencies over multiple points, um, you know, through essentially the style is a way of describing like the frequencies of those patterns for any particular player that uses that style. Would it be fair to say that potentially then, um, so like in the framework you have, correct me if I'm wrong, um, every player will have the same number of styles and patterns, right? Well, essentially 
we allow we allow players um, rather than forcing them to have a fixed style, we give them a distribution over the styles. Yeah, so the so, probabilities will vary then, right? Yeah, so everyone's confined to the same, let's say, dictionary of styles, but how often they use that particular, you know, style vocabulary is what's specific to that player. Got it. So then everybody will have the same sort of cap on how many they could vary across, but they're some players effectively could only have a couple, right? And I think you even sort of see that um, in some of the displays you have in the uh, figure seven and, and figure six, or yeah, primarily a figure seven looking at those distributions then. Um, right. So essentially, yeah. yeah. So those, so those weights might allow, let's say there's a style that's like an aggressive baseliner type of style. Um, there could be, you know, a defensive like serve neutralizer type of, of return style. Um, and every player would have some probability of using any of those. Um, it just might be that, you know, some of those are effectively zero uh, for some for some receivers. And the thing that you show in this paper then is this is this great comparison of this type of uh, predictive performance then with taking more of the standard approaches, taking, let's just use a multivariate normal, let's just let's use a traditional Gaussian mixture model, let's use a mixed membership model that adds in a hierarchical component, but then now incorporate our latent style allocation and see that this does do this best performance uh, for actually modeling the data. The, um... Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where like most statistical papers, right? It's a bit of a straw man, these comparisons. We sort of, <laughs> you know, it's like, well, we looked at the data and we built this model because we were trying to describe it better than anything that was available. So, but it's at least a nice reassurance that it is doing what we Yeah, do. everyone should always do it, right? Is compare <laughs> to a baseline, right? You're going to tell me how to model something in a very great predictive way and it doesn't do any better than intercept only model then i'm not going to want to use the map right the um so yeah no this is the uh it was great to actually then see that advantage especially just jumping from like a table one between a mixture model just a good old-fashioned finite mixture model to then this more advanced approach that has pooling across player information i get next up i guess we'll turn it over to costas transition more discussion yeah i i had the um, actually it's a nice follow-up because i'm going to focus a little bit on figure seven but uh, you know it will show my ignorance of tennis similar to baseball <laughs> um so the, the, you present in figure seven you present you know the results with respect to the receiver and the receiver has been in general the focus of you know the presentation of the results stuff like that but i would expect that the location of the, the, the server return impact location also is impacted by the server and where they are trying to hit the ball. Um, and I mean, you have some of the of them, I'm, I'm pretty sure they're in, including the covariates that you're using um, in, in the generative process. But I am guessing 
Would you see any other patterns emerging if you focused on uh, a pair of server-receiver uh, instead of just you know, the receiver? Yeah, I mean, there, well, as I mentioned, you know, the, the model just basically have um, in the mean structure, there's these offset terms that are that are player specific. So it's another way in which we're capturing some um, player to player differences. So um, both through the the individual style weights that that are um, that are based on the receiver. Um, and then in the mean structure, so basically how the covariates impact the overall expectation for the impact position, both the server and receiver have their own um, their own offsets and they're just additive. So it's it's not, we don't have a, um, a structure that has effectively an interaction where, where that mean could further be modified by the particular like head to head. Um, you couldn't imagine incorporating that. But in, in this case, um, it's simply, you know, a constant um, mean offset that's for that server or receiver um, when they're in that role. Um, and yeah, we, we don't really focus that much on it in the paper because we were focused on the receiver behavior. But there would be um, some interesting things potentially in that server offset because it could tell you, for example, what the tendencies of receivers when they're facing that particular server, how they vary from their average behavior, how they tend to vary from their average behavior is how you can interpret that server's offset. So for example, if, um, if you saw um, a, a positive um, value for the depth dimension when playing on a hard court surface, um, that could tell you that players tend to be even deeper than they typically do against an average server when facing that server. So that's some of the um, information that those server offsets would contain. The, um, yeah, one of the things you even, the kind of switching gears in a way, I think it's important to mention is the fact that you can actually implement this whole process in Stan versus sort of the analogous uh, approach for extending LDA uh, hierarchical Dirichlet process. I'm sorry if you could just give a little commentary on that in a way and why that was even important. Yeah, I mean, Stan is such a valuable tool for folks that are doing model-based work and, you know, want to potentially do some non-standard things. I think it's, it's a really powerful language to, to learn. There are other ways of, of building um, Bayesian models in a like highly custom way. Like for example, PyMC is another way to do this. Um, I think TensorFlow Probability also has facilities for this kind of thing if you're um, more um, working in, in Python. There are ways of using Stan in, in both Python and R. Um, so hopefully it should be <laughs> pretty readily available to most data scientists these days. Um, but it's really great because it's almost like, um, kind of like what 
what um, ggplot allows for those using it for visualization, like this kind of painter's model where you almost start with this like blank canvas and then you kind of build like piece by piece. Um, um, it, it's like that too with the model equivalent because it has all of these like lower level distributions that you can through the, the model script um, combine and, and in that process be able to um you know potentially um build any any kind of target posterior that um that you can write down um so so it has yeah just um a lot of a lot of power and it was really invaluable um for for this model um particularly um because of you know having this this intuition around you know, well, if we could observe these latent things, this is kind of how you would write it out if these categorical variables were something that was actually measured data. And that's kind of makes a nice like intuitive starting point for how you would arrive at um, an actual like estimable, estimable model. Um, and, um, and also, I mean, this data set wasn't particularly large, um, but there are some nice, you know, um, additions that that Stan um, has incorporated over time through both like threading um, and also the addition of a variational inference method for, um, for fitting the Bayesian models that can really help um, if scale is, is a concern. Um, so yeah, so I think there's a lot of reasons to really um, be thankful that Stan is out there and that there's a lot of active development on it. Um, and yeah, it was a great resource for this particular project. Last sort of methodology question I ask, um, just in thinking about this approach, uh, what other examples in whether it be tennis or other sports, do you think uh, latent style allocation model is applicable that you can speak to? Yeah, well, I think um, I think there's um, yeah a lot of potential applications. I know I know it's been something you know that um, I thought about sometimes when we're thinking of, for example, of like pitch classification. Um, you know, that's an area where I could see this kind of structure um, being readily readily applicable. Um, I mean, obviously this one's um, really nice in the case where you're, where the ultimate outcome of interest is, is something spatial or, or multivariate. Um, so, um, so that would be something that I think would be where it would particularly stand out compared to other kind of latent variable approaches. So, um, so that could come up a lot when thinking of like, um, well, defensive positioning um, is one since, you know, defense, it's sometimes hard to have a direct outcome. So it's sometimes really important to think about the, the spatial configuration of players in particular plays. Um, and um, so I think something like this could be, could be helpful for some of those, those applications with developing defensive metrics. Um, so yeah, those are a few things that come to mind. Yeah, I can I could definitely see this in the sense of um, uh, NFL pass coverage. This was work we, I did 
uh, mm. there and Sam on just using Gaussian mixture models um, for a lot of different variables information, but just sort of could take this that same what you did the same approach of just modeling spatially relative where the defender is um, and sort of capture maybe differences amongst players that could exist as well uh, with a hierarchical polling effect um, that could be a very interesting example of this um, so for people that are listening that might be thinking about big data bull depending on whatever the contest <laughs> is this year uh, could be relevant um, yeah. do you have any uh oh, go ahead stephanie <laughs> Oh, I was just going to say that's that's a really nice example. And I think it could also make maybe some interesting, um, interesting possibilities where you could, you know, compare some of these latent um, categories to like existing role definitions. Because yeah. I feel like sometimes, right, we're always a bit unsatisfied with like, you know, kind of single category role definitions and usually there's always some players that are kind of some mix of of what exists and so it could be interesting um in that way of kind of comparing against those standard definitions yeah absolutely yeah Costas, do you have anything else you want to add yeah i have one last question with a kind of a high level more discussion type of stuff so have you um seen any consistent patterns in terms of how players, how the description of the players based on their latent pattern changes based on, let's say, different types of courts. So, for example, uh, you know, in figure seven for the first every turn, you could say that, let's say, Murray, Federer and Djokovic have similar patterns. So do they all change similarly when they move, let's say, to clay? Um court or are there any because i i would guess that that could actually kind of uh, help with um scouting let's say mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. you know similar players send, tend to change similarly uh, or things like that yeah well i think um there there i think there is something to that in the sense that um i think if you're if you're a more defensive player in general then you'll probably have a tendency to stand even deeper on clay, for instance. Because um, one of the things, and it's, it's, we don't really get into this paper, but it is important from kind of a tactical point of view, is that um, there are really like two zones um, of the, the serve that a player can kind of optimally make contact um, and, and that's why, like, you might notice in the descriptions that there's usually a bit of a gap, like you, you either see players kind of like, you know, two meters in front or, or back, but like, they're rarely in between that if they kind of go between those two modes. And I think what you're seeing there is that there's one stance where they're deciding that they're going to take the ball on the rise and another where they're going to take it on the drop. And so it's basically like, you know, imagine the ball coming out of the bounce, it's going to be on an arc. And for most players, their their optimal impact position is probably going to be somewhere around one meter. And so there's really like two positions in that arc where you have the opportunity to do that. And and so that's that's what you're seeing. And the more defensive players are the ones that are kind of inclined to you know take the ball on the drop. Um, but where that will be is going to be influenced by the surface in the sense that some surfaces the ball just you know bounces more 
Um, and, you know, some of that is dependent on the surface and then also the, the characteristics of the serve. Like if, if the server has um, a very strong kick serve or if they just tend to be, you know, more spinny in general versus very flat, that will also influence like what's that kind of ideal position, whether you're taking it on the rise or not. Um, so that's where I think the, I guess, style, the more aggressive or defensive combined with surface will influence, you know, those tendencies. Um, but it's, yeah, it's not always that consistent. Like one of the things that was kind of surprising is that um, Federer, he basically does the same thing, like in every condition. <laughs> it's kind of amazing that I don't know <laughs> how he does it. Like he just, I guess he just manages to kind of adapt um, his, his racket, you know, and things so that he basically can be always positioned in the same place, like in any situation and it just works for him. Even so that, in clay. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't really change his position that much. So, so he's kind of an unusual one in that respect. Most players, they do kind of, there are some general patterns, like players tend to be deeper on clay. Um, and, you know, and, um, usually, um, they're most aggressive, like on a hardcore situation. Um, so that's kind of, yeah, the, the general pattern that you'll see. And then it tends to be that you see less adjustment to surface for the more aggressive players compared to the more defensive ones. Um, but yeah, but there can still be some interesting, like individual differences. Yeah, you can really see just the at the macro level, yeah, in figure three, big difference between clay and grass and hard courts in terms of mm. those locations you were describing. The um, and again, yeah, that really just has to do with just the balance characteristics of of the ball on on clay. So the last question that has nothing to do with methodology or actually the paper in any way, but next week begins U.S. Open, I believe. And what can we get as a prediction from you? <laughs> is, is this paper any informative of our us understanding what could predict outcome? In <laughs> yeah, well, I guess, I mean, this one's, it, it could be, it could be a strange one. Cause I think there's, um, you know, the, during the U S open circuit, they use a different ball. And um, I think it's been true. Um, since maybe 2020 um and it's something that that does have a big impact um on the play so i mean if for folks that were watching when there was this kind of surprising run of leila fernandez and raducanu where raducanu um eventually won the title um and it was like this kind of cinderella story i mean that that was sort of the introduction of this this ball and so so some of those results um that appear surprising might not be as much when we consider like the the characteristics of, of this ball and how it plays differently um compared to other other events but um um but yes i mean setting that aside i think i think it's a tricky one just because there seems to be a bit of a a transition period with with um you know, Roger not playing, Novak not being able to enter the U.S. apparently. 
Um, and, and with Rafa's, you know, injury, this, he has this kind of chronic foot issue that, um, is hampering, you know, his ability to have kind of a proper warm up. Um, and, um, so I think that makes it a bit, a bit up in the air. And then with, with Ash Barty retiring after her, her win at the Australian open, um, Sviantec, um, has been dominant in a lot of other areas, but less so like on the hard court surfaces. So I think, I mean, it's, it's pretty open-ended. It's definitely, I would say an opportunity for both a new Grand Slam champion on the men and women's side. So I, that, I guess, I guess it's probably a, a pretty safe <laughs> prediction to say something surprising is going to happen, but that's, that's kind of what, what I would expect. Well, thank you, Stephanie, for taking the time. This was a fantastic discussion, very informative for very great paper to read. Covers a lot of material, a statistical model of serve return impact patterns in professional tennis. Uh, I just want to also point out a shout out for um, Stephanie, who's a former speaker at our Carnegie Mellon Sports Analytics Conference. Registration is now available, options to attend remotely uh, for students. That will be free registration. Uh, but of course, in-person options coming up in October 28th, 29th. And I also want to shout out and mention to opportunities to work with very complex type of spatial data. I don't know if it's ethical in this sense. I did just see info about uh, Kaggle competition, not the big data bull, the big data derby, working with horse track uh, racing data that could be interesting to model. Uh, but with that, just want to thank again, Stephanie, uh, for joining us and uh, take care and until next time for whatever we discuss uh, potentially next month or the month after, but thank you, Stephanie.